Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms. By watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. Line. This week, uh, we are talking about the Broadway revival of A Little Night Music. This week, we are talking about the Broadway revival of A Little Night Music. Specifically, the performance from September 4th, 2010. Specifically, the performance from September 4th of 20... 10. You got it, Angela. Um, you're able to Elaine. find this entire performance on the internet. Sorry? Elaine. Did she have the earpiece? Angela had the earpiece, but she was... Because she had That's the earpiece, she was not delayed. It was Elaine who was constantly calling, Line! Did she actually yell, Line? Yes. Oh, oh, yikes. Well, uh, in any case, this performance sans line yelling uh is completely available to you on the internet you should be able to find it very quickly uh we mentioned this because while we review the show itself we also talk about the specific performance we've seen everybody search 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 <sighs> without further ado the curtain is now rising search uh, oh, why is it so dark? I can't see around here. God, where are we going? What's happening? Why is it so Please dark? Please enjoy our discussion of the September 4th, 2010 performance of A Little Night Music. Search! All right, you ready? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is going to be good. What, I think it's going to be good. Mean? It's been a while since we covered this. What are we doing? A little night music. I'm, it's, I'm excited. We're, it's the first time we're covering like we're a Sondheim in a little while. We're so doing, we're doing a little night music. Yeah, yeah. It was your, it was, it was your pick, Dan. You picked it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Finally, I've been waiting. <laughs> uh, Dan. Yeah. I, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I know Who's how much dead? you care about a little night music. I Who's know. Dead? No, 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 no. Everyone's alive. Every, well. Well, every person's alive. It's more the show is... Okay, listen. You've told me a lot about the productions you love and it's, what you love about the show. It's my and favorite this. musical. You yes. Know, you know, I was in a musical theater class in college. And I don't know. Someone asked favorite musical. And the kid next to me, really gay, he was like... <laughs> Oh, let me be really pretentious and answer a little night music. And I was sitting there like, oh, that's my honest answer. Am I pretentious? <laughs> that was when you made your discovery? Am I pretentious? Oh, that's not I thought he this. was just an asshole. Maybe he was. I don't think that's, I don't think the two are inseparable. Oh my God. I have bad news. Uh, what? We might we might not be watching the one you like. We're watching the one I chose. 
Yeah. I remember picking this. I remember picking this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all coming back to me now. Just so we both are on the same page, which like production this? did you pick? I picked the Broadway revival with Bernadette Peters okay, okay. and Elaine Stritch. Okay, you're going into this and with look, complete certainty. I have a lot to say about this production, and I've waited a long time to say it. Okay, okay. I was getting nervous that you might have forgotten about the production just based on what I've heard you say about it. I'm, I, I'm just so happy to be talking so about the happy show. To talk about a little night music. Well, isn't it rich? The, I'm nervous that you'll go into song if I respond to you. Not right now. Not right now. Okay. It's it's a recurring trend. It's a recurring trend. Later. I will later. <laughs> I will sing the song. Okay, that's, that's warranted. Later. That's warranted. <laughs> For God's sake. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Today, we are, in fact, talking about A Little Night Music. The rumors are true, folks. Oh! Oh! Yay! Are you delighted, Dan? I'm delighted. Aren't you delighted? I'm delighted Haven't as Haven't you waited so long for this? You know, yes, I have, actually. I've been waiting since about last summer to get to this show. Well, yeah. You, you just refuse to make your life better. You won't. Get through the Sondheim catalog in a recent reasonable amount of time. He, he, he refuse any recommendations I give you. I give you a lot of free help. Look, you. Hey, look. I followed the recommendation you gave me in watching a little night music. And aren't you happy you did? I I can't lie to you. Yes, I think you really could have sold your case better than you did. But yes, in the end, I was extremely. What do grateful. you mean? I could have sold my case better than I did. I told you, you your, have to your, watch. Your reasoning for having to watch the New York City Opera production of A Little Night Music first was you have to. And that was all the reasoning you gave me. No, I, I told you you have to because you need to know what a good production of this material looks like. So then you don't walk into the Trevor Nunn production thinking this is acceptable. There's a difference between good and wrong. If you had said what a wrong production of the show is, if you had talked about the fact that it interprets the show in a different way than the show exists as, then I would have gone, okay, so I should probably learn what the actual show is before I see like a weird interpretation. It would be like saying, don't watch Sam Mendes' Gypsy first before watching a different production of Gypsy. I don't think, Trevor, this is really getting into the production section. That's later. We're, later. Later. Henry. What is later, Daniel? All I ever say is later. Joshy. Joshy. Later. Yes, There's we know. Even, Joshy. It's a, it's, oh, Joshy. Everyone agrees. Henrik, Joshy, Henrik please. In a, Joshy. In a consonant. You, you didn't need to put an E on it. It ends on a consonant. It's not like Joshua a Bobby Baby, is Bobby, three Bobby, Bobby kind of situation. And you know what? You know what? I, I, I'm Joshua. Done jo- I am done saying Joshua. It just, it's too much work for my mouth. So, D, what did you know about A Little Night Music before okay. starting this episode? Okay, you're just doing that to be an asshole. If it was honest, if you had found it organically, I would be fine with it. But you're just being an asshole now, and I don't like that. E, eh, it's a bite, bite. It's two, e. it's two, Dan. Mouth, it's two mouth shapes. Dan d- is E just... versus D-A-T-N. Two mouth shapes versus three saving energy. Dan. D, what do you think Dan. about a little night music before you, before this episode? What's your history with a little night music? So, I happened upon Sweeney Todd first. 
As you mentioned in the previous episode, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I went to the library, and I got the VHS of Into the Woods. Now, this Mm -hmm. was way past the VHS era. We were lucky that we still had a VHS player, because Into the Woods was not on DVD at the library. It was just on VHS. And I think Mm -hmm. at that same time, I watched Sunday in the Park with George, which had just been added to YouTube. But... Uh It was, like, in 20 different parts, because at the time, you couldn't put long videos onto YouTube. Right. Oh, God, I remember that. The videos could only go up to 10 minutes. Yeah, it was only, like, 9 minutes and 30 seconds per video. So it was in, I don't know, 15 parts or something. And that Christmas, I asked for the original cast album of A Little Night Music. Mm -hmm. And it was lovely. And, um... And I remember watching on YouTube again in a million different parts the New York City Opera production of A Little Night Music. And I very much remember this revival being announced and being very excited. And, um, yeah, and we saw what Catherine Zeta-Jones' performance was like, them being less excited. And then they announced that Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch were going to be in it. And God, oh, my head exploded. And... Every little audio that came out of that, well, I, I have never listened to the first performance of that cast because, um, you know, Elaine Stritch had some line issues and I didn't want to hear her in that state. But all of the other audios I remember getting and I listened to constantly. And, sl- I mean, I have it on vinyl and I have the original Broadway cast album. I have the London cast album. But it, it's... I mentioned, and this was very early on in the podcast, there are maybe three perfect works of art. And to me, A Little Night Music is one of those. And to me, A Little Night Music is my favorite musical ever. Honestly. I just love it so much. Uh, You watched the show today, and you had not had any experience with the show prior, correct? Yeah, I knew the songs. I knew the big big songs that come out of the show. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You knew a couple of the songs. I said I knew the big songs. I knew the big songs. I knew Send in the Clowns. I knew Liaisons. I knew Later. I knew Miller's Son. I knew I knew the big songs. I only knew one of the three in the trio that's the hugest song in the show. That's not knowing the big songs. Big as in popular, not big as in uh, grandiose. But the, the Now Later Soon sequence is very popular. Very popular, not as popular as the Miller Son. I've heard, I've never heard uh, soon done at one audition. I've heard I the Miller Son done it almost all. That is no. You don't take the Miller Son into an audition because that hey, piano part. You don't. You don't. Is... You don't tell me. You tell that. You tell that poor, poor, unaware performer. That song is about forty percent playable. 20% fakeable, and the rest of it is, if this is your first time reading it, God be with you. Yeah. <laughs> For, uh, would, you, would you be interested in starting by talking about a little night music in the greater context of, like, the Sondheim canon? Sure. Why don't you start that conversation since you're so familiar? How do you think this stacks up being a year after Follies? Here's the thing. Um, I, I, I'd been doing some reading recently into Sondheim, uh, and 
Uh, I saw someone notate uh, A Little Night Music as sort of the beginning of Sondheim's middle period, um, which is interesting because I I sort of, I guess mm. when I'm just thinking about... Why? Yeah, because when I think about Sondheim's career overall in terms of, like, I suppose periods of... Who did this? ...artistic through lines... Uh, it's a textbook called Sondheim's Broadway Musicals, written by Stephen Banfield. Huh. Um, what were his reasonings? The musical, as an art form that plays for the highest commercial stakes of all, can probably never win the power game beyond a certain point. Once an authorial identity is established, be it of director, producer, composer, or writing team, the public and the critics alike make ever more stringent demands in their appetite for novelty on the one hand and the comfort of what they know and like on the other. Uh, Every success makes the next one more difficult. Whatever the truest perspective, A Little Night Music seems to have begun a new period for Sondheim, and perhaps for Prince as well. It would again be one of mixed success and failure, commercially speaking. Artistically, its onset was marked by a turning away from the subject matter of the American present with its dangers of narcissism towards the non-American past. I suppose if you're looking at it specifically of like a period of A Little Night Music, The Frogs... Pacific overtures and that sort of thing up till you get to like merrily, I guess. But I think that makes sense. Yeah. For me, I I I see it broken down like uh, this period of Sondheim. I see it broken from company to merrily, like the Prince era. Well, no, I mean you have the on Sondheim book that Nathan Morden wrote, and he breaks it up into three periods, and the period is exactly what you said. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. The uh, three periods are exactly what you said. And that's what makes the most sense, if we're talking about that. Um, if we're talking in context, why a little night music at this point in his career? Mm-hmm. Well, they had eked out a profit on company. It was not a major profit, but they managed to recoup when the show was closing. And that was fine. They got a lot of money for Follies. Follies, at the time, was the biggest Broadway flop in history. Now, Mm -hmm. it ran for a while. It ran for a while. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that the production costs were so astronomically, unthinkably high. They had spent a whole $750,000. I mean, you can't imagine how much money that was. They spent $750,000 on a Broadway musical. Where is this going to end? <laughs> um, it, it was just such an expensive show to run, and they had spent so much money that they didn't make their money back. They lost the entire investment. They needed a hit. Mm-hmm. And they thought this could be popular. Not that they were trying to specifically suss out. This isn't, you know, bland commercialism. But they had a feeling, do a love story. Because especially you had Bobby who didn't want to get married and you had two failed marriages at the center of Follies. Maybe people would like us if we gave them a love story. Uh Haha. I saw a, a little glimpse of something. I didn't want to spoil it for myself, but I saw a little glimpse into Finishing the Hat, and I saw that they were like really specifically looking at writing uh, a European romance musical as soon as like, mm-hmm. you know as uh, as early as the '60s, specific, specifically Sondheim and Prince. There was a little note that I saw of uh, well, time wise, Follies was Sondheim's musical. Follies was what he wanted to get on. He happened to bring Company to help Prince. 
and how Prince had to convince Sondheim that Company was a musical and that they should do Company before they did Follies. So I guess in a way, if you're saying A Little Night Music is really the first musical they undertook after they were successful, Sondheim and Prince as a team, or at least knew that they had a cultural foothold, if not always financially successful. I, I, I misspoke a little bit, I think. Uh, just generally, it starts off by saying, in 1964, shortly after Hal Prince's triumphant switch from producer to producer-director, which she loves me, he and I decided that we'd like to do a romantic musical, something flowing and operetta-like. And then it, and then it, it took until after Company and Follies, yeah, to start talking with Hugh Wheeler about doing specifically something uh, European. Both of them uh, mentioned... Uh, different pieces that they were interested in adapting uh Hal and Hugh it was not uh yeah they were going after a different movie it was not smiles of a summer night they couldn't it wasn't a movie the they, were, they were going after actually Hugh and Hal they were specifically throwing out uh books that they know that they, they knew that they wanted to adapt uh and Sondheim not being much of a reader uh I'm a slow one and I lack patience not a winning combination searched my memory for movies and plays that I'd seen and then came up with two possibilities from there uh, Smiles of a Summer Night, which they ended up adapting, and then Jean Renoir's uh, The Rules of the Game. Uh, yeah, and they went after the Renoir piece, and they went after the Renoir piece, and the, the rights didn't come through, the rights didn't come through, and um, they just decided to move on, and the rights to night music came through. And the famous story there, the opening night telegram they got was that the Renoir rights had finally come through, and they said, we just wrote this. <laughs> We just wrote whatever that spot oh, that's was. So funny. Oh. Whatever that spot was, we can't use this because we just wrote that show. That is not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Have you? Mm-hmm. Had you? Do you know anything about the Bergman movie? Oh, I didn't mention that. I've seen it like yeah? four or five times. Oh, Jesus. really? Do you like Jesus, it? Why did I not mention that? Yeah, it's terrific. It has um. Ask me later about the differences. Ask me later about the differences. Okay. Later? When? When is later? All you ever say is later, Josh. It's too easy. It's Joshy too easy. later. We're, we're getting this after Company. We're getting this after Follies. We have a little night music. It's three insane artistic successes. Uh, three within the span of four years on Broadway. Not a little night music. But... A little night music was the out-and-out hit. Made money, made a lot of mm-hmm. money for everybody, and to a this, movie. well, that's the less said not about saying the, the movie's movie, a hit, just saying that it was a hit enough the, to become a movie. The less <laughs> said about the movie, well, and it's also how are you going to make a movie out of company? You would have to get a pretty daring director who would really reconceive the entire piece. Same with yeah. Follies, you can make a movie out of a little night music because narratively it is. Straightforward. Deceptively straightforward. It is not as straightforward as it seems, but it is deceptively straightforward. Yeah, it, it, it is a, it is a, it is unconceptual. No, it is conceptual. It is. No, conceptual. I'm not saying like non-conceptual. Just... Like not that there are no concepts, but I mean like in the terms of like it, it, it it's a rather of linear. The plot. three musicals. Yes, it is linear. That yes, is exactly that's the word it. I should have used. Mm-hmm. Looking at these three big artistic successes, and you know, no, especially knowing that this one's your absolute favorite, I, I'm curious to know what what makes this your favorite musical. So many different reasons, and you know, it's uh, you tend to hear 
with Sondheim musicals. Oh, the score is so great, and then the book lets it down, or the book can't match the score. Mm-hmm. And I don't always agree with that. I think people are being a little harsh. I think overall Sondheim has decent books. A Little Night Music specifically is the book that absolutely matches the score, both um, conceptually and artistically. Take something like the Sun and the Clown scene. When I look at you and my eyes are open, I see a woman I have loved for many years. And when I look at you and my eyes are not open, which is most of the time, you look at that monologue. It is every bit as beautifully written. It is every bit as lyrical. It is every bit as moving as Send in the Clowns is. And Mm -hmm. you have this beautiful monologue. And in response, of course, it's not what Desiree wants to hear. So she's not going to respond with a monologue. She's going to respond with a song. And so not only are the book and the score copacetic, there are... It's not just the Sun and the Clowns. It's the Wooden Ring monologue. There are several monologues in here that are songs in and of themselves songs in their own right and damn good songs and songs isn't the right word but damn good character moments damn good character showcases damn good acting moments and not only that i mean it's witty it is the right tone for the right score i don't think it's sondheim's best score i think it is absolutely a solid score i think it's top shelf sondheim uh comments on best well i think he doesn't do as much in a little night music even as he does in something like merrily we roll along which i think is a damn good score and not mm, the show is merrily we roll along is merrily we roll along everyone who listens to this podcast knows what i'm talking about but it's a damn good score that I would put in the conversation for best. I would have that. I would have passion in there. A little night music. I wouldn't necessarily have as best Sondheim score, but it is a fantastic Sondheim score. It is a book that matches the score. It is also 100% perfectly structured and we will get back to the lessons of the Miller's son. You will have to remember you will have to remind me we are getting back to the lessons of the Miller's son because it is absolutely crucial in understanding how the musical works. Beyond that, beyond it being perfectly structured, it's filled with humor, it's filled with pain, it's filled with love, it's filled with joy. Of the Sondheim musicals, is A Little Night Music one of the most joyous? I think possibly. Would you agree? The most joyous Sondheim musical? Yeah. I mean, they all have moments of joy, but consistently throughout the course of the show, you look at things like Company Ends with basically a mental breakdown. Follies is depressing. Yeah, no, you're right. I agree. No, no, no. I I, I talk about I go to Sondheim shows and it hurts so good. And Mm -hmm. they're soul-crushing pieces, and they make you feel like shit, but they make you feel alive. They make you feel like shit because they're painful. And not anything that he did negatively. It's that he's making you feel these characters' emotions, and the emotions are filled with pain. Now, while there is some anguish in old night music, and while there is a suicide attempt, and while there is a death, 
the overall mood is joyous. It, it, it gives you, you hope. About it, it makes you feel joy. If you think about it, can you think of a more farcical Sondheim musical? The funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Okay. Oh, that might be more joyous, but I, I don't know. Forum with forum, do you get the dramatic weight that you do with a little night music? Well, exactly. That exactly. one is strict farce. That one is outright strict mm-hmm. farce. And so, yeah. if you eliminate that show from the consideration of that, a little night music stands far and above any other of those Sondheim shows in terms of farce, in terms of outright comedy. You know. Mm-hmm. It's it's perfectly structured. The book is every bit as good as the score. It's witty. It's joyous. And oddly enough, although the Sondheim pieces are constantly concerned with free will and the price of having free will, they all feel more specific than... What's it all for? And a little night music is the Sondheim show that gets around to asking, what is it all for? Literally a line in the show. Yeah. I, I might be paraphrasing, but at the very end, Madame Armfeld asks Frederica, what's it all for? I don't want to get into it now, but I would eventually at some point like to have the conversation about why that is integral to why I think uh, that this show is along the lines of a condemnation of aristocracy as a concept. We'll get into that. I don't 100% agree with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I know. But it is the the show that tries to sum up the entire experience of life. We're getting very philosophical. We did Three Tall Women (laughs) last episode. (laughs) Now we're here with Madame Armfeld asking, what is it all for? What's the reason? Well... It's all there is, isn't it? I. It's beautiful. Just sheer beauty, sheer decadence. Should be. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. (laughs) So we usually ask, what do you take away? I think I've expounded on why I like it, and I think that's what I take away. What do you take away from a little night music? Aside from the specific point that I just mentioned, um, I think what I take away from a little night music largely is the notion of allowing yourself to live your life according to your heart, you know? Because I think the only person who's completely contented throughout the entire show, who really has no outright dramatic pain is Petra. And she sings the Miller son about why that's the case, because she's the only person in this show who goes, well, I'm going to live for today, and I shall marry this person down in the future, but that's for then, and right now is now. You know, I'm going to spend this time kissing mouths before feeding them. And so I think that's the that's maybe the big thing about A Little Night Music. It's about pushing aside any notion of what must be done or what you must have or what must be the case or how you must live and instead pursuing what you want and what you love. Do you want to get into the Miller son right now? Sure. So this is structural, but it will also lead us into other questions or other Mm -hmm. topics. Throughout the show, we have the leader singers. 
commenting yes. on the show. Remember, darling. Chorus, if you will. Yeah, da, 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 da. Remember, uh, they comment on all the action. Mm-hmm. They put the show in context, and it's interesting. A little night music knows it is a musical. I think all the characters know they are in a musical. And all of the characters end up hearing everything on the stage. And this becomes important mm. with the Miller son. Because what has happened right before the Miller son? Uh, send in the clowns, no? Mm-hmm. Frederick leaves Desiree. And a lot of people have argued that the Miller son isn't necessary. Now, there used to be two songs at that point. There used to be a song called Silly People. And there was also the Miller's son. And they cut silly people. Silly people was Frid. So you had Madame Armfeld's servant sing. Then you had Petra sing. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to cut a song there, why keep the Miller's son? Because the audience needs to hear the Miller's son. And the rest of the characters in the show need the realization of the Miller's son before they can get to the end. There is no reason for Frederick and Desiree to get back together unless they have both heard the Miller's son. At least spiritually, if not literally. Yeah. And the message of the Miller's son, there's a lot I'll have missed, but I'll not have been dead when I die. And the message Uh is, or I will marry the Miller's son. She ends up at the exact same place that she started. And what the song is really saying is, it does not matter what choice you make. What matters is that you made a choice, you went forward with your life, and you weren't stuck. That message in a Sondheim musical? Who the fuck would have thought? The point is, there's a lot I'll have missed. It's about you're going to lose, no matter what choice you make, there are things you will lose out on. But not making a choice and just treading water, baby, that ain't it. And... yeah. The characters in the show need to hear that before Desiree and Frederick can get back together, before Carl Magnus is going to go after his wife. The young kids don't really need to hear it. They've all ended up together, but they're fools who know too little, as the show has mentioned. I I forgot to mention another reason why I like it. That's We'll get into that structurally. The knight smiles three times. Dramatic structure... You have three different acts. It's all very copacetic. The score is in a series of threes. Brain happy. But... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, later, soon, too. A lot of threes here. The characters need the Miller's son to get to the end. It is also the Miller's son that kills Madame Armfeld. It is that exact (laughs) moment because she realizes she's dead. She's already dead. It, it is hearing the Miller's son that then leads her into the wooden ring speech, and it is the one-two punch of Miller's son, wooden ring, dead. You mm. cannot get to the ending of A Little Night Music without the Miller's son. And talking about what's different from the movie and what's different from the musical, the movie ends with the Miller's son. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I mean, huh. it's, it's a couple-line exchange, but it's way at the end of the movie. What's different? Madame Armfeld maybe has ten lines. 
What's different? Frederica is a five-year-old boy who doesn't speak ever. Why? Because it's a very different tale. It is a very okay. different tale that puts different weight in different places. But that is the genius of not taking a movie and just throwing it on the stage and taking the ten best lines and turning them into songs. Oh, sorry, sorry. Were you talk? Sorry, were you talking about? I thought you were talking about the A Little Night music movie adaptation. So sorry. So sorry. I'm talking about Smiles of a Summer Night. I get that now. Now I get that. I was like, Oh, Jesus. Why? Oh, I was like, Madame Ormfeld having 10 lines in a little night music. Oh, Jesus. Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler take the general story of Smiles of a Summer Night and they know that it needs to be completely changed for it to make sense as a musical. And they give it a framing concept. They give it the leader singers. They add theatricality of these characters can all hear the Miller's son. These characters might be able to hear the leader singers. But there is a reality that this is now on stage. You have changed the very nature of the piece to make it live and make it lively. And a lot of film critics uh-huh. ended up hating a little night music because honestly they didn't want to see an adaptation of a Bergman movie. They wanted to see the Bergman movie on stage. And there's a famous, one of the critics when the New York city opera production opened, uh, said, you know, if only Bergman knew what they did to his movie, he would have hated it. And Sondheim wrote a letter to the critic that I think got printed. And he said, just so you know, he came to see the show. He said it had very little to do with his movie, but he absolutely loved it. And we started collaborating on a movie together that ended up not coming into fruition because of contractual details. And Bergman was going to be doing an adaptation of The Merry Widow, and he wanted Sondheim to do the lyrics. And Streisand was going to star in it. And just the funding didn't come through on multiple ends. And so that fell apart. Mm-hmm. But Bergman was so happy with a little night music that he started seriously considering working and collaborating with Stephen Sondheim. So mm-hmm. doesn't that critic look ridiculous then? But you see what I mean? That you can't get to the ending of a little night music without the Miller's son. Absolutely not. And that's what I mean about geniusly structured. The show knows it needs that. It knows it needs to go find the Miller's son. It knows that it's at the end of the movie. It knows it has to be moved to that point. Because you've created, really, the entire subplot of Madame Armfelt and the daughter now being integral and now putting the entire show in the context of the son will, will smile three times in the night. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, 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 it serves as, like, a really big this is it moment like it serves as a really big conclusion to all of these universal problems that the characters go through individually but together Mm -hmm. it is the voice of reason it is the end of the road kind of so not solution but the, the the answer that has been right under their noses the whole time that they couldn't find yeah exactly Mm -hmm. it was that was tucked away uh rollicking in the hay bale Mm mm-hmm it's a brilliant, brilliant song and a brilliant, brilliant function of the show. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a it's a fantastically constructed show all around. I gotta tell you, the way that you divide these two acts up is so perfect. I think the phrase that I'm gonna keep coming back to is uh, "brain likey." 
your your brilliantly eloquent phrase from earlier. No, I said brain, brain happy. Liking. Brain happy. Brain happy. Mm-hmm. Well, brain likey's fun in New Year, but I'll do brain happy. Brain happy when act one in one bubble and act two in another bubble. And what's great about it is that the entirety of act two does happen in this bubble of being in the country, and you transition into that bubble in the finale of act one. But... It, it, it's so great to have this act one entirely be we're meeting these characters, we're fleshing out this world, we are establishing these rules, we're establishing these relationships. And by the time you hit the intermission, every character and every relationship is definitively established. And so the entirety of act two is, well, let's How are they going to end up with them. the right people? Let's untangle it. Yep. Yeah, let, how, do we, how do we match mm-hmm. them up? And it's great because... You know, at that point in the show, at the at the end of Act One, everyone either wants to fuck or kill someone, and no two people want the same person. <laughs> and it's so fun because you're thinking, oh, this person's gonna go this way, but this person's gonna go this way, and how are we gonna end up here, and how are we gonna result in this? And that's what gets you so excited, jumping into the second act, going, okay, let's see what the hell happens on this weekend in the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, great point. Well, and also, again, whether or not the show is in two acts or three acts, it's called a three-act dramatic structure. Even if it's two acts, the show is likely using a three-act dramatic structure. And the congruity of the knight smiling three times, and you have a three-act dramatic structure, and Sondheim then is going to really gild the lily by composing the entire score in triplicates. Yeah. Brain happy. Oh, you know what? That's another thing. That's that's got to be why it's a it's a waltz score then. Well, it's a waltz operetta. Well, uh, because yes, operettas operettas usually have waltzes. I'm sure you've heard the Merry Widow waltz. Ya da 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 ya da 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 dum. Um they know that they are almost paying homage to operettas. Operettas have a lot of waltzes, and he wanted something romantic filled with waltzes, and it just so happened that it perfectly fit in with the dramatic structure of this show. I don't know if he knew and he saw, okay, everything in this show is threes, but then I'm sure he knew I'm composing in threes. I gotta have a triplet song of Now, Later, Soon. Yeah. Which, talk about Now, Later, Soon. And, okay, okay, holy shit, this song. Is this there song anything might better? Be one of, Is there anything better? This, it, this might be one of Stephen Sondheim's most impressive accomplishments. It is not just the fact that you serve three independent songs that all touch on the same theme and all relate to each other and all exist within this one specific moment, this one specific emotional universe. It's not just that. To then have them overlap... Quadlibe. And to have each of their lyrics rhyme with each other. It's fucking genius! Well, and just... Watching the show today, I was clapping with happiness. You know, you're laughing. Ha 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 ha! Stendhal would ruin the plan of attack, but there isn't much blue in the red and the black. Yeah. 
I just I I literally the, I, I, I out loud I yelled that to my friends as just being fucking too much. I, the verbal <laughs> in the best the way. verbal dexterity of now, and then <laughs> you meet that dexterity with depressing cello. And on top of that, you have a whole rhythmic soprano section. You don't really think of it as rhythmic, but... And Sondheim has always been more of a rhythmic composer than people have given him credit for. But there are really definite rhythms. So you then go from dexterity, melancholy melody, to rhythm. So then all three come together and they're all offering almost something different. And they just meld together beautifully. Fucking endearing, peering, hearing, domineering, cheering, interfering. It's not just that they all rhyme, but they all make sense independently. <laughs> that is the most intricate fucking construction of rhyme I've ever experienced in musical theater. That is nothing short of a testament to Sondheim's genius. Uh, give me something else. Something else to gush over about this show. Give me something. Are, are we talking about the score? Sure. Yeah, I guess while we're here. We've talked, we've talked already about how this score is, like, mostly waltz. It's all in... Um, three four or three four adjacent time signatures you know you get three four you get six four you get six eight um sometimes you get a nine eight it's all triplicates you, it's all yeah all triplicates some form and of three four to, i have three quarter time what a, what effect does that have on your interpretation of the score well, it's impressive that he can do it and still have it feel varied. Yeah, very true. You're never hearing the same song twice. Which is hard when you think of a time signature that has, you know, that can be interpreted as so limited as 3-4. Because, you know, sure you can get you can get a lot of variety out of a 4-4 four, four thing. It's sort of that sort of is like the blank canvas. Then you think of a 3-4 score bum 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 that's that's a very specific parameter for a lot of people and sondheim manages to i don't think he transcends it i think he is so clever with the construction that he absolutely deceives it yeah he sets up boundaries for himself because he knows he does well with boundaries and so let's find what the boundaries are here and let's be as creative as possible yeah. And, you know, just talking about great moments in this score, we really have to mention, you know exactly that song.
Send in the clowns. What a terrific song. You there, Chashi? No. No. No, he killed me. But I... I'm dead. I I did because it was so moving, I know. I thought it was the Miller's son that was supposed to kill the person. Well... Turns out it was Send in the Clowns. The Miller's son kills Madame Armfeld. Send in the Clowns kills the gays in the audience. So clearly, you over there killed... No, because that's out of happiness. That's out of... Oh, out of I made you happy? This is out of... Okay. This was... No, I'm talking about in the show. This one was a slow, dragging, torturous thing that you just put me through. How dare you? Um, it was very... And I died as a result of that. It was very deeply felt. We never hyperbolized on this episode. It was very moving. It was very deeply felt. I really put it myself... It was incredibly moving. It was incredibly moving to hear it through Bernadette Peters' voice. And then for you to tarnish the legacy of that song, truly, it's just so unthoughtful of you. So I, I really worked to stamp, on... To stamp on Bernadette's legacy like that. I, Are you going to do that to Glynis Johns? I worked on the acting beats, and I came up with something I'm really proud of. Did you have a, did you have a point about the song, or did you just want to play it? The audience deserves to hear me sing Sun and the Clowns. Did you have a point about the song... It's a beautiful song that I performed well. It's Sondheim's, I guess, arguably most popular song. It is his it's biggest the song hit. that's been recorded the most, isn't it? Yeah. He won. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. He won a Grammy Award for Best Song of the Year in 1975 for a song he wrote in 1972. <laughs> or 73. <laughs> I, because it just took several years for some, Judy Collins came along and recorded it. She's a major pop star. Uh-huh. It was the hit, and all of a sudden, he wins the Grammy for best new song of the year. And it's not a new song in any way, shape, or form, but it's when people became aware of the song. Wow. What makes this song so perfect for the moment? It's the monologue that came before it, and it's meeting that monologue. Um, mm-hmm. What makes the song so perfect you know, he wrote, it, he wrote the song in about one day. Oh, my God. Did, did he write it for Gliss? Yes, really? yes. Originally, they had that scene, and they thought Frederick was going to have a song. Uh-huh. The song that was said in The Clowns, they thought was going to be Frederick's. And Hal Prince called Stephen Sondheim down to rehearsal, and he said, I want you to see how I've directed this scene, and the onus is now off of him. Oh, and on yeah. The and I want yeah. you to see if that's useful at all. And he went home, and just in one night, he wrote Send in the Clowns. And I heard him, I saw Stephen Sondheim, I, I breathed the same air as Stephen Sondheim. I saw him in conversation with Frank Rich. And oh, I heard great things about those conversations. This was in Akron, Ohio. They didn't know if anyone actually knew Stephen Sondheim. So most of the <laughs> conversation was about Sun and the Clowns because they figured everyone's heard of Sun and the Clowns. I guess we talk about Sun and the Clowns. And he talked about specifically the long, arduous process of that song then becoming a hit. Uh-huh. And all of his other songs, anything that became a hit, none of the score of West Side. Hal Prince and his partner Bobby Griffith sold the rights of the score of West Side Story back to Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim because they said no one's going to ever record any of these songs. These songs are not going to be popular. It's a good score, but it's not usable. 
And then mm-hmm. the movie sale happened. And then the movie soundtrack came out. And then everyone's singing. It, it cost Hal Prince millions and millions and millions of dollars over his life. But made Stephen Sondheim <laughs> very rich. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he talked about he went home. And it was... He wrote it over like a 30 hour period. Like, I think it was a little more than a day, but he knew... I think knew... they might have talked about that in that Hal Prince documentary as well, actually. He knew that Glennis Johns couldn't really sustain notes, like I can sometimes. Um, but, he, right. so he put a hard consonant at the end. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? And you can try... Isn't it rich? But it's... That sounds abnormal. If you want to make it sound conversational, none of the phrases are really that extended. And that is by design. That is the way he wrote that song. Why do you like sending the clowns? Thinking about it as well, I, I, I really do think it's the setup for it. It's the way that that song is a response to all this. And it's the fact that it's what we've been building up towards. You know, that from the very beginning of the show, we've been leading up to this exact moment where they get together. But they don't because Frederick goes, I just can't. Because this is the way my life is, and this is the way that I live. And so this is the way that I'm going to continue my life. And it's a song about Desiree suddenly being so unexpectedly humbled by it all, you know? Well, because she went into, not the evening, she went into the weekend with a plan. And her plans always work out, and all of a sudden, this isn't working out. I'm not winning. Not only am Uh I not winning, I know I probably shouldn't win under these circumstances. Yeah. And I have been foolish. And the entire song is her going... Well, isn't this a laugh? Look at this. Look at where we are. Well, no, it's her trying to amuse Frederick as to not completely 100% lose him. And then as soon as he leaves, Mm. you see all of the emotion really come out. That's been accurate for pretty much everyone that's played it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Liaisons, I have to say, before we move on, um, People ask, what are your favorite Sondheim songs? I will give the weirdest list ever. I will give Liaisons. <laughs> Beautiful from Sunday in the Park with George. Ariadne from the Frogs. Ooh, I'm getting into that one soon. And In Buddy's Eyes from Follies. Sure. Those are mine. And Liaisons, I just think, is such a terrific song. And we'll talk about Elaine Stritch's performance of it boy will we ever talk about it but what is it about liaisons that makes it so great you talk this is the first old person wisdom song i love we've talked about it before and i think we talked about what show was it we brought it up it wasn't guys and dolls there was another show i think was it wild oh was it wild party yes when it ends yes okay when it ends I think Liaison's Triumphs Above When It Ends as my favorite old person wisdom song, you know? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really serve as like a wisdom song because nothing's really being taught, but it's a reminiscence song. And it's a reminiscence of uh, 
why can't we go back to the good old Morals days? changing. And it's this, yes, the world is changing and it's passing us by. And it's whereas passing her by. Beautiful, and she knows it's passing beautiful her by. In, beautiful in Sunday in the Park with George is painted specifically in the lens of sort of like losing grasp yes. on the world going mm-hmm. around with you. But I, I, I think what, what specifically Liaisons does is it doesn't look at it from a depressing point of view. It looks at it as, I guess, former glory, you know, coming at it from the angle of former glory and going, where did the glory go? Where did the beauty go? Where Why was I not able the... to impart it on my daughter? And why was my mm-hmm. generation not able to impart it on the younger generation? It's that notion of like, is this now going to die out? It works on so many different fronts. And it's a it's a rather long song. Not specifically in terms of writing, but the tempo sort of drags it out a bit. And, and if you're going to get a lane stretch, you're going to get a, a whole bunch of great acting beats that are going to jack up the, the time. Well, she um, backphrased. She, we'll talk about it. She she decided it was a conscious choice to really backphrase everything, which I thought worked. Yeah. But later. So did I. We'll talk about it. Later. When is later? Let's, uh, let's find a second joke. Let's find a second joke. Okay? Just one other. Um, It's just... Where would you put A Little Night Music in the Pantheon of Musicals? In the Pantheon of Musicals? I feel like those things that are on the Pantheon of all of musical theaterdom, it's always interpreted through a lens of this is I, I just the hate greatest them. example I hate. of... I hate, I, I, sorry, I have to say this right now. I absolutely hate the way you say theater and then to hear theaterdom. Theaterdom? It's a, it's a Canadianism. You got to get over it. Theaterdom. That's how you say that. Theaterdom. Theaterdom. Uh, in terms of theaterdom. Um, a knife in my heart. Now go on with your point. Thank you. I feel like it, what's always put up there is, oh, this is the greatest example of theatricality or this communicates this message the most beautifully or this is the most important or this has the best to say or this makes me feel the most triumphant and i don't know specifically which one of those categories a little night music falls under but i do have to say it is simultaneously pleasant and brilliant piece of musical theater it is one thing for a show to be pleasant and a show to be to be endlessly entertaining and something that's full of joy and full of excitement and full of interesting plot and interesting characters and is able to juggle all those balls simultaneously. It's one thing to have that, and then it's another thing to have that audience go away with something really significant, which I think A Little Night Music really, really incredibly succeeds at. I don't know specifically what, I guess, criteria of a best musical ever this falls under. Um, but I do know that this is a worthy contender of that conversation. Do you have a more maybe specific answer? Something that you've... Well, no, no, no. I've already gave... That you've come to in loving it? I already gave my specific answer. I, I think it's a perfect work of art. And mm. so whether or not it communicates this the greatest, whether or not it communicates this the greatest, I don't think that's relevant. I think it's perfect. 
And so I'm rating the perfect show above all the other not perfect shows. And that's not a knock on imperfect shows because I constantly say on the podcast, we love the works of art we love because of their flaws. I don't think A Little Night Music is flawed. I think it's genuinely one of the only things that isn't flawed. And so then you go right to the front of the heap. And then I just get the most personal enjoyment out of it. I completely understand that. So before we completely move on, uh, mm-hmm. is there anything else you want to add about a little night music? Yeah, you know what? I I'd like to give a little bit attention to uh, our main man Wheeler here. We've sung his praises a reasonable amount so far, but we haven't really taken the time to talk about how good his book is on the surface level. You know, it is filled with the most brilliantly indulgent wit you know this is really like on the level of oscar wilde kind of playwriting you know what i mean you just look at that dinner scene and it is like five ten minutes of like unabashed assault and it's all done so eloquently and so gorgeously worded the phrase the concept of the term remote youth Knocked me off my fucking ass, man. Like, <laughs> thank you, Hugh. Thank you, Hugh. Yeah, I just wanted to take a second to go appreciate him. Uh, other than that, I think I've said everything I needed to say about the material. Well, I feel bad for your life then, because there's so much more to say, but we probably don't have the time to say more. Yeah, a guy has to celebrate what passes by. We gotta keep moving. Okay, that was decent. Thank you. I know. I know. So, yeah. I suppose that just about wraps up what I have to say about A Little Night Music, the show. Uh, do you want to jump over to the performances then? Uh, well, there was... What? There was a production. It wasn't very good, but there was a production. Okay, I was just trying to protect you. You're okay to talk about it? You're You're good? Trevor Nunn, venerable director of Nicholas Nickleby. <laughs> Jesus. Um, Please, put some respect on his name, okay? Venerable director of South Pacific. <laughs> Trevor Nunn, uh, <laughs> venerable... Head of the Royal Shakespeare Company for decades. So, do you know what brought him around to a Little Night Music? The devil. <laughs> no, I no, I don't believe Macintosh was involved with this one. I believe, if I am remembering correctly, and I nothing th- for that, nothing for that. Come the fuck on. If I am remembering correctly, and I do think I am remembering correctly, this began at the Minier Chocolate Factory. You are remembering correctly. Yes, it started in uh, December two thousand eight, and it had Hannah Waddingham, uh, Alexander Hansen. And the girl that didn't win, uh, I, I'd do anything. It had Jesse Buckley, who came in like third or second. Uh, Jesse Buckley, I know that name. That's the name that's about to be in uh, Eddie Redmayne's cabaret. Yes. And she was trying to be Nancy on that reality TV show. She is in no way a soprano. And Trevor mm-hmm. Nunn cast her as Anne. There's your first sign that maybe he doesn't understand this show. Because not being able to sing a role 
I don't know, pretty big flag when it's one of the vocal roles in the entire show. Just mm. a hunch there. So, Trevor Nunn goes to the mini A chocolate factory, which all of the budgets are about $17.28. And but a well-spent $17. Yes. And for... Wasn't mini A Cho- chocolate factory the one who did the, the Sunday as well? Yes. They've had some good productions. I'm not uh, I, I'm not angry at the mini A chocolate factory. They yeah. then transferred the show to the West End. And they decided they didn't need to expand anything or upgrade at all. And then they transferred to Broadway. And once again, they decided they didn't need to upgrade anything. They didn't need to spiff anything out. So you're seeing a very small off-Broadway production as the only Broadway revival of a little night music. And wouldn't you know it, it looks fucking cheap. I mean... Yeah... It does look pretty cheap, yeah. Why don't you lead, and I will just rage along the way. Well, it's it's one small set piece, really. It's this sort of... It's a unit set. It's sort of, it's like, it's, it's like ten mirror-looking panels sort of arranging in the form of a semicircle uh, with a couple doors, and then sometimes there are tree logs that are wheeled on, and sometimes you get a bed, and... That's what the set is, and it's very small and very insignificant. You know what's funny? No. Now, later, soon, Anne always gets in the bed, and this production, Frederick is laying in the bed, and Anne never gets in the bed, and you know why? Because the bed is not big enough for her to get into the fucking bed. It, the bed, the one bed in the show is oh, so God. small, poor Bernadette and Alex Hansen are sitting there sending the clowns, they're both, like, almost falling off of the each side of the bed and they're just sitting on the very edge. As soon as Alex Hansen lays down in that bed, there's no way another person could fit. <laughs> so it's not just that he there's also one does, bed. Like, the weirdest... It's a small one bed. He does the weirdest, stupidest, most insane looking like lurch forward to say Desiree I've ever seen. The fuck was that about? Was he possessed? Was that supposed to be was that supposed to be funny? <laughs> like um this production when Trevor Nunn finds comedy oh boy do are we going to play the comedy up because Trevor Nunn funny um another lovely moment like that I'll get my hat and my knife why are you holding that note out so long and that was consistent through Catherine Zeta-Jones and Bernadette Peters, that had to be a Trevor Nunn choice. No one in their right minds would have Desiree hold out knife that long. And what it is, is he doesn't expect the audience to actually understand that these are jokes and laugh. So then you overplay the jokes to such an extent that it's just stupid. Yeah. It's it's Michael Ball in dress. Funny. Ha ha. <sighs> British comedy. Yeah. Anytime he thinks he's found a joke. And the show is filled with jokes. And God, does he try to kill the comedy. (laughs) I mean, all of the barbs that Charlotte has, maybe about 60 of them made it into this performance. 
as actual barbs and actual funny lines. We should also mention the performance that we watched is the replacement cast after Trevor Nunn had been gone for months and they found out Trevor Nunn wasn't going to be coming back. And also, Elaine Stritch and Bernadette Peters recentered the show. And also, Elaine Stritch brought in her musical director, who um, had different ideas and was going to direct certain moments in different ways than Trevor Nunn did. So, <laughs> this is after this was fixed. Can we talk really quickly? This is the second time on this podcast we've covered Bernadette Peters entering a foolish British director's interpretation of a musical that sucks and then taking it upon herself to fix it. Why do we do this to Bernadette Peters? Has the lady not done enough for us? Because the Brits know better, apparently. Yeah, it is. It's despicable. You caused this. And I won't stand for it. No, 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 no. I did not. I did not. With your goddamn lame love. I, I, I did nothing to support his rise to power. Yes, you did. I was born in 2001. I did not. I There's nothing I could have feasibly done. Uh, as Shirley MacLaine says, we have lived many lives. What? Shirley MacLaine <laughs> famously believes in no, reincarnation. I be- I, good for her. What does that have to do with anything? Uh, because in a past life, clearly you aided and abetted. Absolutely not. I was fame. not into musical theater in a past life. No fucking chance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, absolutely not. Like, I don't... Whether or not... I, whether or not I believe in reincarnation comes second, what comes first is I was not into musical theater. This is getting off topic. Let's get back on topic. You waited and embedded. Apparently, everybody in Sweden agreed that during the week we were black and during the weekends we were hmm. white. Which has to be the stupidest fucking design decision ever. Everyone in Act 1 is just black, 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 all wearing black. And then Mm -hmm. Act 2 happens and everyone's in white. To which I ask the designer, did you read the script? And it has to be, I mean, it's a very pointed comment. But it proves that no one listens to lyrics because there is a lyric in the show... Wear your hair down, dress in white, so grow older by the hour, and be hopelessly shattered by Saturday night. So then, putting everyone in white in Act 2 sells Desiree short, because Desiree is smart enough to know this girl is coming to challenge her, and she's going to want to show her youthfulness, and Mm. so... The original production of Night Music, everyone's in various colors, but all of the sudden, for the first time, someone comes out in a red dress. And where does your eye immediately go? And um, the great Ming Cho Lee sent all of his design students at Yale to go see a little Night Music, and he said, what'd you think of the show? And he said what mattered was green set red dress. That's the image that stays with you. Green set, red dress. Mm-hmm. And the red stands out against the green, and your eye is immediately following the red. And you look at some of those color photos of the red dress and the... the it was more of a chaise lounge than a bed, but you see the photos from Send in the Clowns. It's absolutely stunning. And yes, Desiree absolutely puts on red because she's going to get her man. 
Mm-hmm. You make Desiree look dumb when she knows Anne is going to be in white and she wears white. She's going to make herself knowingly look older then. Also, you know who else you're making dumb? Charlotte. Because Charlotte, Countess Charlotte, told Anne specifically, dress in white because you will look young and other people will look old against you. You're then telling me Charlotte is going to wear white and make herself look older than Anne? What's to stop Count Malcolm from then saying, fuck Desiree, I'll go with Anne? Uh It just, did you not read? She tells her to wear white because she will make it will make her look young and it will make everyone around her look old. So then why does Countess Charlotte show up in white in the second act? You have made two different characters in the play look dumb with that design decision. Why do you hate color? That is the designer and that is Trevor Nunn. Why do they hate color? Why are they not seeing this show in any color terms? Why is everything so dark? Why is everything so dour? You know, you have... He's... Uh, Fred Henrik is playing the cello. At the beginning, he's practicing. And Anne walks in. Oh dear, that's gloomy. Yeah, and with that line reading, you're fucking gloomy too. You're not helping the mood at all. Mm. Why is everything so dark? Why is everything so gloomy? How did you fuck up things so royally that you don't get Bernadette Peters' entrance applause? (laughs) Like, did that register? Bernadette Peters, Broadway legend, starring in a Sondheim musical, walks on stage and does not get entrance applause. Probably didn't know it was her. Dances on stage. Yeah, because it's so fucking poorly lit at the beginning. No one can see it's her. Signs you fucked up. That has to be pretty high up there. How do you feel? Did you get that off your chest? I have much more to say. You can talk for a while. I need a drink of water. My problem with this production is that it's no fun. This production is no fun. What's fun about this production are the performances. And at this rate, I'm wondering if that's despite Trevor Nunn. Yep, um, it absolutely is. I Here's the reason why I'm grateful that you made me watch the New York City Opera production first. The reason is, if I hadn't seen that, I wouldn't have known that this was a comedy. Mm-hmm. Elaine Stritch's stuff is, of course, hysterical. And... There's a lot of funny moments in this production. There's a lot of stuff where the audience guffaws. But without knowing that this was a comedy, I would go into this thinking, oh, okay, it's a, it's a period show with some jokes. And I, I, I wouldn't have gotten farce from this production. And at its heart, it kind of, you know, a little night music is to an extent a farce. And there's just none of that here. There's, it, it, you're, you're, you said it really well. You were, you, you said that it was being directed in a certain style. They're playing it like it is a Strindberg play. Yeah. But it's not. And it's like, and it's like that's not the tone of the show. Objectively you're misrepresenting not. the show. Mm-hmm. Parts of the show suffers as a result. Um. There are parts that. Well, work there are a couple parts that work but there's so much that 
doesn't that feels so irregular it feels so out of the blue that it just completely feels like it, I, I i can't imagine what you do going into this loving a little night music because this it, it, it just misrepresents it's the show soul crushing soul crushing it, it's <laughs> so i've heard um act two scene one fred come get me they're here we can't be caught squatting on the ground like bohemians and then the dinner scene comes and they seat everybody and, and, yeah. on the ground oh my like bohemians. Right. Oh my god, you're right. Read the fucking script and get a table on the stage. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. It, it's... <laughs> there are no words. There are no words. We can't be caught. So even if she's seating other people on the ground, we can't be caught on the ground squatting like bohemians. So at the very least, Desiree would not have been allowed to be on the ground. God damn. And yeah, she's in a wheelchair, but no way is Desiree going to be on the ground. That's for bohemians. Yeah. I actually hadn't considered that. That's insane. That is the second evidence of read the fucking script. And he talked about, oh, well, I have British accents in this production and the specific British accents. Notate yeah. class structure. And, oh, Petra uses such a low dialect. Come the fuck off of it. While there are economic undercurrents of a little night music. It's Sweden. That isn't. That isn't. It's Sweden. Right. It's Sweden. Also, you're in America. So why are Americans putting on British accents you put up, to be in look, Sweden? Look, you put up Les Miserables in Britain. I can understand you go British accent. Sure. You go. You have British performers. You put in a British accent. Anytime Les Mis is, is on Broadway, it's American accents. They're not adopting British accents to do Les Mis here. So why the fuck are you transferring this production to America and keeping their British accents? What you misrepresent the show again by leading them all to think that these are British aristocrats. I, well, and Alex Hansen was the one performer that transferred. He has a British accent, fine. It really doesn't matter. But why am I listening to shoddy accent work? A certain actress that will go nameless in the first scene completely, 100% even forgot she had an accent. With the amount of rehearsal time you had, that was what you wanted to spend time on? That's the real question. That was something you found important to spend time on. You really, really wanted crazy. to spend money on that. Well, And I guess, I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones has a British accent, but she easily has an American accent, and she's comfortable in an American dialect. Angela Lansbury is somewhere mid-Atlantic. She's always had a slightly British accent and a slightly American accent. She's never been discernible as one of the other, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and Elaine Stritch comes in and, you want me to have a British accent? Nice one, kid. <laughs> and the pacing, again, greatly improved with the replacement cast. I know specifically, Every Day a Little Death, according to Trevor Nunn's tempo with the original cast of this production, was taken at half of the speed you saw it performed here. Every day a little death. You'll kill the audience like that. 
he yeah, can't pace he can't pace for shit he really just has never been able to pace a musical correctly uh, mm. I that was one comment I believe that Mary Rogers had when she went to see his Oklahoma why is it a half hour longer <laughs> poorly paced no comedy confusing accents terrible design doesn't listen to the show I I really hate to be this negative but is there anything to be positive that Trevor Nunn specifically did here like the thing is with this production you just after a while you just sort of get this wash over of you know oh yeah it's going and it's an interesting story and some good lines and I'm just uh, I'm just I'm just sort of uh, a little bit less than actively watching it you just sort of get passive with the show with this production mm-hmm. and so there's nothing to really point to and say oh this was brilliant oh this was here and this that for me it was literally just an experience of mm, yeah this was this production of the show and it just came and went mm-hmm. and it's one thing to do, I really about halfway through thought, if I was seeing this at a small off-Broadway theater, I probably wouldn't mind as much, because mm. the scale is expected there. But, this is Broadway. This is what is supposed to be the height of all theater. This is also Stephen Sondheim, one of the most influential composers whether you like him or not he is one of the probably the single most influential composer in broadway history and a little night music is his work of sheer decadence so if you're not doing a full production which this is not a full production it's very scaled down physically and we should talk about the orchestrations which are seven boring. or nine people it's boring basically boring. a string quartet with a couple keyboards and one woodwind it's just like it sounds doesn't sound exciting it doesn't uh, sound exciting well it sounds chinny and it's the one moment that always gets me the sudden in the clowns reprise you me and frederica and the entire orchestra swells and to hear them really try and like i don't know i felt bad for these people because they were playing as loud as they possibly could trying to get something to happen but there weren't enough of them and Mm -hmm. it's the met recently did porgy and bess and to not really get into the production or any of the performances, there were a lot of cuts to the score that were made. Mm-hmm. And it was a new version of the score that Concord made. Draw your own conclusions. Uh, but Concord hmm. had done a new critical edition of the score that included a whole number of cuts. Now, Porgy and Bess is a little unwieldy without any cuts. I did say to people at the time, look, I understand you probably need some cuts, but 
this is Porgy and Bess. This is arguably the greatest American opera, and you are the Met. You are supposed to be America's greatest opera house. If you can't do the full score of Porgy and Bess, who else is going to do it? Mm-hmm. You're signifying that the full score will never be heard again. And that's how I feel about this Little Night music. It was not revived for a very long time. Glenn Close was supposed to do it in the 90s. That didn't work out. We finally get a revival of a Little Night music. It is this very small-scale production that, on top of just being very small-scale, isn't very good. But if this is the scale that a Little Night music has to be done at, you're signifying to everyone you will never see a full production of a Little Night music again. And that has borne out, because I have gone to several productions, and I can tell you now, every single fucking production, Act 2, everyone's in a goddamn white costume. And you know what? Because it's cheap. Because rather than buying multiple kinds of fabric and dyeing them, you can buy white fabric. And costume everybody with white fabric. And that's a little way to nickel and dime and save a penny. And I can tell you I've seen productions that absolutely think they can get away with a string quartet and a woodwind. No. Mm -hmm. You do these things on Broadway. It sets a precedent for the work itself. And so when you do a little night music and it is this cheap, you are effectively, in some ways, saying the full-scale show will never be viable again. And I feel that even more than something like the John Doyle Sweeney Todd, because that was such a radical take. No one else could do that take. And you can argue, you know, Maury Yeston talking about the Nine movie, the show is the show, and whatever you do to the movie, my show will never be changed by the movie. And yes, the original production and the original scale of production the original orchestrations full set full costumes that can exist but Mm -hmm. how likely are we to see it i don't know that's a shame Hmm. that is depressing god i hope someone is able to do this show again on a major scale with that kind of deserved level of decadence a lot of people are talking about maybe lincoln center should do it but again, sure, yeah. you have to go to a nonprofit then because different contracts. Right. And although it is on a small scale, it has to be said, A Little Night Music, of all of Stephen Sondheim's musicals, A Little Night Music is the only musical of his that recouped in the original production and recouped in the revival. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you want to start talking about these performers, though? Because I feel like that'll be able to bring us onto a slightly higher note. Sure. Let's start with Leanne Larkin. Where do we know her? Leanne Larkin was June in the Patti Lapone Gypsy. Mm-hmm. We covered her there. Mm-hmm. Um, we loved her there. We did, and we see her take on like a more substantive role here. Well, more substantive, more comparatively. but still... Uh, smaller part she's a delight on stage she sings the shit out of the miller's son god does she ever hurt uh not have been dead when i die yeah that die she has fucking whams you in the back of the head wow there's a vocal power there's a 
there's an assuredness. It's a confidence. It's a brilliant stage presence. It's a radiation. She really does have a gift for being on that stage. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's delightful. I agree. I agree. Um, do you have anything you'd like to say about Aaron Davey as Countess Charlotte? We talked about her previously, right? Grey Gardens, if I'm not mistaken. She was well, she Little Edie in Act fantastic, 1. She uh, played a fantastic Little Edie in Act mm-hmm. 1, when we, and we fucking raved Could about Could not her. have been more positive about her. Yeah, it's we. It's maybe one of the most that we've lauded a performance on this podcast. <laughs> I don't think she's very good here, and I don't think it's her fault. It's a, it's a, it's a bland direction, you know. It's a very depressing take on Charlotte, and yes, the character clearly has some problems, but one could say that Charlotte, um. It deals with life through her wit. And this Charlotte just isn't dealing with life because she's not... She has witty lines, but she's not being very witty or she's not aware that she's witty. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was specifically Erin yeah. Davies' choice. I... Again, specifically her song noted that... You know, I heard in, Trevor Nunn was very strict about this is the tempo. It has to be at an absolute snail's pace and he's killing all the comedy and all of the good laugh lines are from Charlotte. So if he's killing all the comedy and you're the character with all the laugh lines, is it really your fault that you're not landing the laugh lines? When it's been a uniform decision across the production that not much of this is going to land as funny. And I don't think she's very good here, but I don't think she's bad. Yeah. It, it It was a fine performance, and I think more could have been done with it under a better director. I, 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 I'd like to talk about Bradley Dean as uh, Carl Magnus. Yes, Aaron Lazar was out, and understudy Bradley Dean was on as Carl Magnus. Listen, I love this performance, actually. I do like this performance, because... I this is the reference I used with you. I feel like it's very easy to go the Miles Gloriosus route with this. And Miles Gloriosus is the stock character I use when I think of this big, burly, muscular, manly man who's so strong and powerful and nothing can topple him down and he's that kind of person. Do you get what I mean when I go for that like really sort of cliche kind of stock character? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so easy to do that with Carl Magnus. Like, listen, I love Michael Maguire a lot. I love him as a stage presence. It sucks that he did like three shows ever, but he's a lawyer. I now. fucking love him. Yeah, he is. He's a divorce lawyer. Um, I love him as a stage presence, uh, and in the role, he sort of went Miles Gloriosus with it, and it was fine because his voice was booming and confident and short enough that it made up for a lot of that sort of very rigidness. But Bradley Dean really fleshes the character out. It gives you more than just one shade, which is really nice to see, you know? Really gives some depth, applies some logic to the character, makes him a little bit more of an interesting character than a caricature. Um, I love to see it. You love to see it. I thought he was good. 
I thought he fulfilled all of the requirements for the role. It I didn't think it was the best performance that I've seen in that part, but it was solid. I wouldn't have been disappointed in the least seeing him in person as an understudy or as a replacement. It's I I I, I really enjoyed the performance. I really did. I'd be interested to watch Aaron's as well cuz you and I have also both talked about our appreciation for Aaron on the podcast, but I am extremely happy with this performance. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to move on now to Alexander Hansen, and uh, he's playing Frederick here. And I have to concede, I know this man, not personally. I know, I've seen this man perform. I have three musicals that I have tied for my favorite musical of all time. It's... It's Sunday in the Park with George, and it's Jesus Christ Superstar. Clearly, I didn't get that first name. What was that? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, clearly, my Lame taste miss. is rock Lame operas miss. and extremely left-brain difficult musicals. Um, and Alex Hansen uh, played Pilot in uh, the 2012 arena take tour him that to uh, reality him to show pilot. winner Ben Forster was take in. Take him to um, Yeah. He, um, he was, the, he was uh, in the brilliantly staged uh, auto-tune production, as I like to call it. Yeah, so I saw him. Uh, so I know his performance like almost like the back of my hand from that. Um, and I didn't recognize him at first here. And I gotta say, this started off giving me the impression of, like, a really creepy Frederick. Like, I was kind of uncomfortable with Now. More than, like, I I, I was the first time I heard the song. Um, did you get that ex- Did you get that feeling? That he started off kind of creepy? No, he seemed like he was tired and he wanted to nap. <laughs> Honestly. Being completely honest, now it was one of the most tired nows that I have seen. And it's kind of, I guess, getting into the whole, I went to work, I'm coming at home, and home is also a minefield. I'm not getting a break here, and I'm exhausted. Yeah, I, I, no, yeah, I get that. Yeah, totally. It Um, wasn't my favorite now of all time, but I didn't get creepy. It didn't feel like I, I don't I don't want to go full on like predatory with it or anything, but it felt like a really cold twist to it. That might have just been how I read tired. Cold possibly. But cold, yes. The entire production was cold. And I would agree with you on cold. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's a bit extreme for me to say it sort of felt like someone like analyzing his prey. Like I'm not talking about full on hello little girl. But like, let's say 30-40% of that energy in Hello Little Girl. That's what I was getting from that. Hmm. I will say, though, overall, this did go on to be an incredibly, incredibly solid performance. He really, really knows how to carry himself. He knows how to navigate the comedy in this show. He knows where he stands with Desiree. He knows how to uh, adjust himself to Carl Magnus. And he's a very great singer as well. I thought it was a very, very thorough performance that I liked. So to start my talking about Alexander Hansen, I will start Mm -hmm. by quoting Barbara Cook and Elaine Stritch. 
And they both said that Alexander Hansen and A Little Night Music was about the best leading male performance in a musical they had ever seen. Huh. Not just Stritch, who was in the show with him. Also Barbara Cook. Leading Sondheim aficionado performer. Yeah, holy shit, that is high, high, high praise. And I have to say, I do not disagree with either of them. He is a force on stage, although I do agree that now was cold. The rest of the performance was incredibly warm. He's a very likable person to spend time with. It's a terrific voice. He has all of the acting chops you need. Even though the comedy's getting killed left and right around him, somehow he knows how to land all of the comedy, and Trevor Nunn didn't affect his ability to land all of the comedy. He's very good giving to the other actors in the show and somehow he wasn't tony nominated Hmm. that is a shame he's absolutely terrific and how it came up was barbara cook was at the tony awards and they were asking who are you rooting for she said alexander hansen wasn't nominated that's who i'd be rooting for (laughs) just terrific absolutely terrific trevor nunn did one thing right he cast Alexander Hansen. <laughs> um. So now we're shifting over to the to the names. We've had some names here already, some names to you and me, but now we're with the names, and let's start talking about Bernadette Peters as Desiree Armfeld. Um, I should mention mm-hmm. I saw Bernadette and Dolly, and I saw Bernadette. Uh-huh. In January of 2020, right before everything got shut the fuck down, Mm -hmm. in concert, she sang Send in the Clowns. And I have to say, two separate cell phones went off during Send in the Clowns. And not even the same. What? Two separate cell phones went off during Send in the Clowns and her concentration you knew she had to hear it everybody in the hall heard it her concentration instead of being pulled out of it she got even deeper into the song with each ring and i have to say it was a good performance of sending the clowns i think she performed it better in this video than when i saw her in person but she finished the song Full house, mid-show, standing ovation. Everybody, (sighs) as soon as that song ended, they jumped out of their seats. And I was like, oh, oh, we're standing up. And the incredible thing about that was she looked around like, now you're standing up. I still have another song I have to sing. I'm going to have to top this now. And the song she had to sing was Being Alive. And she launched into Being Alive. And I have to say, my brain exploded. I have never heard Bernadette belt like that. And it was very much... Wow. I know I have to leave it all on the line because this is the final song and they all just fucking stood up and this isn't exactly what I wanted to give, but now I have to up my game. And she started belting the shit out of being alive. It was the best song being alive i have ever heard 
I literally turned around, was looking at other people, couldn't catch my breath, didn't know if I should get my phone out and start recording it. I, 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 oh, terrific. Just terrific. Mm -hmm. A treat to me in my life. So, Bernadette's take on Desiree, then? It should also be pointed out, Mm -hmm. Bernadette replaced in A Little Night Music, this revival. It did not recoup with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury. It came very close, but it did not recoup. They announced about two weeks before this revival closed that they had finally recouped, and they recouped with Bernadette. And I also have to point out, she Hmm. replaced in Hello, Dolly!, Hello, Dolly did not recoup with Bette Midler. There are a number of reasons for that. Wow. That revival finally recouped when Bernadette Peters came in. You bring Bernadette Peters in a revival to headline. She makes and you money. And she gets the show fucking recouped. That's a right broad. It's a right broad. I don't know why I just turned into a Damon Runyon can character, but go ahead. Me, me neither. But I'm not upset about it. Go ahead. What do you think of her, Desiree? I think it was the most energetic and lively performance on the stage. Well, is there a lot of competition in this production? No, no. And so she's ahead by a far, 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 far margin, and. Aside from one exception, which we'll get to, um, she's re—it's almost like she's the only person who knows what show she's in. Um, she's the only person who knows how to navigate this material, what the material requires, and what her characterization needs for the material to be delivered the way the material was intended to be interpreted as. And the fact that that's the bar for her success in this production is astounding to me. But the absolute truth of it is that she just portrays this character with flying colors. It's excellent comedy. It is excellent presence. It's excellent dramatic chops. Excellent vocalism. It's almost redundant saying this with Bernadette Peters. It's hard to get a bad performance out of Bernadette Peters. One man was able to do it, and then she stopped getting paid by him. You are gifting this production with someone of Bernadette's immense capability. And truthfully, this production is fundamentally better for her involvement. In every sense of the word. She... Look, it's not just that she shines in this production. It is that she is one of the great Desirees in the history of A Little Night Music. Sure, yeah. She understands the dramatics of the character. She understands, probably better than anyone else, how to play Sondheim show subtext. She's hysterical. She's also game. She knows that Trevor Nunn went on a bunch of interviews and talked about British accents. So she puts on the British accent. But boy, she knows what show she's in. And you're not going to fool her again, you fucking Brits. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she does a little night music. 
she's not interested in Trevor Nunn's Little Night music. She will try and honor what he created, but at the end of the day, she's going to honor Sondheim more than Trevor Nunn. And, yep, it's just a lovely performance. She commands the stage so easily. What is it about her Send in the Clowns that is so great? Because it is one of the great Send in the Clowns. She's very weepy. It's a very weepy Send in the Clowns. That can be off-putting at times, but it isn't here, at least for me. And what mm-hmm. is that, really? I I I think it's I think it's the fact that you so passionately want to like protect a Bernadette Peters performance. Do you know protect, what I mean? Protect, protect. So badly... That's what it is. You want to protect Bernadette Peters, and she sees everything crashing in front of her, and she's trying to hold it together. But God, this is the end of the world for her. Mm-hmm. She play performs the song as if it is absolutely the end of the world. Yeah, well said. Wow, it's just terrific. She's fantastic, brilliant, and immaculate performance. There's another person to talk about. Elaine Stritch plays Madame Armfelt, and thank fucking god that we get to talk about Elaine Stritch on this podcast. You know, I remember very specifically the day that Elaine Stritch left us, and mm-hmm. I was driving with a friend to Chipotle because we were on a lunch break from something, and we had been listening to the company cast album, and sure enough, we got out of the car, and she said, Elaine Stritch is dead. I said, no, you're you're joking. We were just talking about Elaine Stritch being flat on company. You're joking. No, look at the phone. Elaine <laughs> Stritch is dead. And I texted someone because <laughs> the news got out and immediately my phone blew up. Are you okay? How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> they knew. <laughs> because I had felt such a connection to Elaine Stritch. And I said Mm -hmm. at the time, what is so heartbreaking is that there will be no new joy. Elaine Stritch is on a TV show where she does an interview. I watch it. I get joy. And because she's so sharp, any time that she's doing anything, it feels brand new. Hmm. And that is the sense that she brings to Madame Armfelt. New joy. Not necessarily that the character is joyous, but it is a new discovery of the character that brings you, the audience, joy. It's really a phenomenally, phenomenally, phenomenally extravagant performance. There's not a single moment of Elaine Stritch on this stage that is not exemplary. She flubs a line once. She was noted for having some issues remembering lines. It should be mentioned she was 84, 85. 80, 85, 85. And she didn't wear an earpiece. 85 years old. She refused 
Hey. She absolutely refused to wear an earpiece, which several people of similar age had been doing on Broadway at the time. She refused. And I have to say, it's not even that she flubs a line, it's that she takes a half second to remember it, and she gets it letter perfect. In the video we watched, she gets every word right. She gets every line mm. right. I think she paraphrases two words in liaisons. That is the total extent of things that she gets wrong. So if she had line remembering issues, it was not apparent at this night. And again, because I was so obsessed with a little night music and specifically with Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch and little night music. And because I listened to so many different audios of this production, I have to say, never listen to that first performance. Um, if she had huh. memory issues later on in the run, they apparently were never there when someone was bootlegging. So what were those memory issues? I think the reports have been exaggerated. I, I, I don't, I don't really know how this performance could have been better. The comedy is on fire here. The reminiscence of it all, the whole, the whole aspect of our character that is looking back is so fucking spot on. You feel so much for her. And you're so drawn in by her. And you're so engaged by her. I just wish I could have been in that room, you know? Like, I wish I could have shared that energy with Elaine Stritch in that moment. You know, a lot of people criticize her saying there's no way that she had counted all of these counts, kings among her lovers. She's not a high-end call girl in Europe. And while, no, she doesn't read particularly European, she dated John Kennedy. She is the mm -hmm. absolute American equivalent in her youth of this character to say that she has no business playing the role that she's not believable everyone gets to have their opinion i think that's ridiculous that's literally something that i i, I was grappling that with myself too it was like does the does elaine stretch have liaisons happen to her in her life and immediately the conclusion i came to was fucking yeah look at pictures of her when she was young. Yeah. She was an absolute It has, it has nothing to do even with... It has almost even nothing to do with physical appearance. It has to be that lady at 20 years old walks into a room. She head fucking turns exactly, for her. Exactly. Exactly. You see how people... Well, and then they would counter, well, to get to that end, you would have to be discreet. And she would never have been that what? discreet. I have heard this argument. I have heard this argument from people. I don't know that that's true. I have heard this argument out of people. Absolutely. I don't know that. I, I don't know. That, I don't know that that's true. Oh, I mean, you're giving her a house. I think she's obsessed with money enough that she's going to say, "Okay, I'll shut up." <laughs> <laughs> I for for a deed to a duchy, sure. Mm -hmm. For a tiny Titian. That's another criticism I have seen of Elaine Stritch in the role. They hated that she signified what a tiny Titian was. That she motioned that it was a big painting. 
Do you know what a Titian is? No. Do you think anyone your age would know what a Titian no. was, it was no, absolutely if they not. hadn't taken an art history course? It is not the most nuanced move that she makes in the show. But you know what? She knows it's a joke, and she somehow lands the joke. Is it a little crass the way she lands it? Yes. Does she land the joke? Absolutely. She absolutely gets there. And the thing is, there's no such thing as a tiny Titian. Titian made these huge wall-sized paintings. There is no such mm -hmm. thing as a tiny Titian. And so, there is a laugh line there. Uh. She gets the laugh. Yeah. Um, that's all the criticisms that have been stemmed on her performance. Now I will talk about why the performance is good. <laughs> Elaine Stritch, uh. I think, is one of the best actresses who has ever lived. Personally, for yep. me. It, there is there's a list of a certain amount of people. It's not just that she can land the comedy, which she does in spades. Liaisons. Mm -hmm. She starts reminiscing. And then it starts to... She, she gets a little lost. And she backphrases a lot of liaisons. And some people interpreted that as her forgetting the lines. I do not think it is her forgetting the lines. I think the character is getting lost. She says several times, where was I? Where was I? And just the speed at which memory comes to the actual character. Now she's going through all of these reminiscences and she realizes I've created a self-fulfilling prophecy with my daughter. I named her Desiree and she's not having the same liaisons I had in my life. And she may never have it. I may have screwed up her entire life. And she starts crying. Mm -hmm. And that entire last song is so rueful, so mournful. And then the very end, and she holds out that note. And you see in her face, she couldn't be more frightened. Because she knows things are mm -hmm. not going well in her daughter's life and she i think is realizing maybe her life this is what i've had maybe it isn't actually amounting to much mm -hmm. and she is so terrified look at her face she is so terrified holding out that note it's so moving it is so moving. And then she gives the best wooden ring monologue I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Look at her face at the end of the monologue. He might have been the love of my life. She knows that line is coming up. Or she knows that is the realization she's going to reach. Several sentences before he might have been the love of my life. And you can see it dawning on her that... That is the point she is getting to. You see her realize the Miller's son. And the way she is wheeled off. She always motions. I, I don't know if you noticed this. She always motions when she's going to be wheeled off or taken off the stage. She doesn't motion. Yes, I noticed that during the dinner scene. She does not motion after the wooden ring monologue. Because she is Damn. so heartbroken and then she half-heartedly makes a motion 
it, it's just the look on her face, the abject ruefulness, and the pain that registers there. It gets at such a deep, dramatic level, and then on top of that, you land jokes like that. <laughs> the level and the variety of talent available to this woman and to the ability to merely get a script and understand how every sentence can be made funny what sentences you do make mm -hmm. funny and where are the dramatic moments Sc basic script analysis as an actress yeah has it in spades second nature to her it is one of the great all-time performances in musical theater. I think both her and Bernadette Peters in this. One of the great all-time performances in musical theater. Wish they had a better production, but they yeah. are just the best. At least we got this. And I am so glad that we have a recording of Elaine Stretch. Video mm -hmm. bootleg of Elaine Stretch existing in a show and being so successful as she is here. Yeah, this is the only uh, bootleg video of her. I believe maybe there's a there's a there's a video, video of her a doing of her doing at um, Liberty, which is her performance yeah. autobiography. But her in a show inhabiting a character. It's just this, and I'm so grateful that it exists. That being said, on the subject of the video itself, I'm not gonna lie to you. It's not one of the better I've ever seen. No. Unfortunately not. It's not a it's not an outright bad video. Well, really. No. But it's it is marred by a couple of pointing issues and you know, some rustling around the microphone and some obstruction here and there and it's a bunch of tiny little things. The person in front of our lovely filmer is giving him a Dickens of a time. <laughs> it's... Huh. First of all, the production is so dark that it's hard to capture on video in general. Mm -hmm. On top of that, uh, yeah, there is a fair amount of obstruction. There are a few moments that actually switch to a second video because they were so obstructed that the person had to go back and get certain moments to complete the picture, complete the image. But overall, um, th th those omissions aren't, like, the worst, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not awesome either. It gives you enough of a sense of what happened and it, it, you're still able to mm -hmm. get the acting performances. The production isn't captured yes. the best, but then is it a production even worth capturing the best? <laughs> yeah, so basically, I guess I'm going to give this video like a B. I'd give it a B, too. Yeah. So a B for this video, and I don't think it, requires much deliberation it's an a plus for a little night music i think we've we spent enough time thank explaining you. that defending that thank you for doing this thank you for putting up with me you know we 
we we we put up with the ones we love for the things they love and we we sit by them and we we hear them out and oh we entertain them i thank you and you respond basically uh it was exhausting this was a duty i was honor bound to that i didn't really want to take part (laughs) i'm happy i watched the show the show i'm fucking grateful to have watched and you know there it's a production that had uh some blandness and some heightened angst to it at points, but but aren't you overall, glad you saw Stretch? Yes, for goddamn sure. Um, you know, it, 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 if anything, I, I I don't know why I put up the the angst there specifically. I don't I don't have a problem with angst in a show. That's not something that that's not a that's not a problem I had with this production of a little night music. I'm a I'm a pro angst guy. How do you feel about angst in musical theater? Uh, what type of angst? Let's go for, like, that kind of um, life sucks and my life sucks in particular kind of angst. I don't know. It can get a little heavy-handed. Um, I can see what you mean. I can see what you mean. Um, you know, I, 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 let, let's test that theory. Next week, I think we should talk about uh, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. We want to talk about a... 2010 musical theater with angst that's the musical to try it with baby let's see if that gets heavy-handed by any chance i don't think you are following the theme of our podcast was that you didn't notice uh bad mother was in three tall women or bad mother child relationship and three <laughs> tall women uh the relationship between desiree and madame armfelt wasn't the most positive I, right. I don't think there's much of a mother in Bloody Bloody Andrew Question Jackson. for you. Question for you. I, well, not right now, but whenever you have the time, take the time out to look through each of the episodes of this podcast that we've recorded and just like bit by bit, tell me all the shows that we've talked about that have good mother-kid relationships. Whenever you have the time, I'd be interested to know. Or even shows that just don't explicitly have bad mother-kid relationships. That's what I'd be interested in. I think you'd come up with um, a minority. Next week, bloody bloody Andrew Jackson. Be there or be square, loser. That is a shocking change of tone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's go from European elegance to... um, Green Day knockoff. See you next week. Go vote. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Tune in next week when we talk about Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, specifically the Broadway production's performance from November 10th, 2010. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot offer this or locate or distribute the recordings discussed here.